So as I begin, as, as, as Mike read, he read Malachi verses 4, 5, and 6. Well, Malachi was a minor prophet. It's the last book in the Bible. And Mike read the last two verses. And if I was sitting out there where you're sitting, I would be wondering. I'm sitting here looking at the sermon, and it's on the Beatitudes, and I'm listening to what Mike read, verses 4, 5, and 6 in Malachi 4. What is the connection? Well, there may not be a connection. But then, yet, there might be every connection. And what I mean is this. Malachi ended the Old Testament with a curse. And Christ begins his ministry with blessings and promises. So also that reading in Malachi that Mike did begins to show us what the mindset of the people, the Jews that were following Jesus at this time. And most of his audience was his disciples, but there was also, if you look at in chapter 4 of the preceding chapter, there's a lot of other people that are following Jesus too. And And also, if we look at Malachi, the law in the Old Testament demonstrates the inability of man to keep the law and showed man his mercy. With the coming of Christ, the old law is going to be done away with, and the New Testament is going to focus on Christ as a sacrifice for our sins and the grace of God. So the Lord is going to begin his sermon with blessings. And this demonstrates that the human righteousness, the way the Jews sought it, cannot be obtained. In other words, the bad news is man cannot achieve his righteousness. The good news is that blessings come from God in unearned grace. Christ came who did not fail brought us blessings instead of curses. In other words, the first king of the earth, Adam, was given a garden, failed and left us a curse. The second king was tempted in the wilderness and passed and gave us blessings. Now, most of the Jews of this day expected that the Messiah to be a political or a military leader who would deliver them from the oppression of Rome and establish a Jewish kingdom. Jesus faced criticism from Jews with four different beliefs and philosophies. His audience was made up mostly of his disciples, but a lot of other people were listening in. Now, the people that of the of the Jews that were there, I want to tell you about who they were and what their background would have been. First, there was the Pharisees. They believed in the fastidious observation of the Mosaic Law, 
and not only every detail of the law, but their own traditions handed down from generation to generation. The Sadducees were also there. They focused on the present. They were the liberals of their day who modified scripture to fit their own philosophy. They were the zealots. Their religion centered in political activism. And then not mentioned in the New Testament at all, but they were around at that time, were the Essenes, who believed that the right religion meant separation from society. Now, with just a little effort, without really hard thinking, I think we can fit a, think of groups today that fit all of these, that fit into all these categories. And to summarize, the Pharisees said, go back. The Sadducees said, go ahead. The Zealots said, go against. And the Essenes said, go away. Now, approaching the time for Jesus to begin his sermon, the Bible tells us he goes up on the mountainside. Now, I've never been to that area of the world, but from what I read about the Sea of Galilee, there's no mountains on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee where this took place. So I think more like going up on a mountain, Jesus had these people following him. And I think he probably stepped up on a little hill like I'm up on right now. And he sat down. Now, so he's, you know, head and shoulders above everybody where they can see him, but he sat down. Now, Jewish tradition says that a rabbi, when he was going to begin some formal teaching, that he sat down. So I would suspect that the people with him decided to sit down also. Now, Jesus begins a chapter, or begins a lesson that's called the Sermon on the Mountain. And this takes place in three chapters in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Now, if you read a, if you read a, a, a um, Harmony of the Gospels. You'll find out that Matthew jumps around a lot. He's not always in chronological order. So I'm just guessing, and some other people were guessing too that I read, that what Matthew wrote was maybe a compilation of a lot of teachings of Jesus. At least Luke and Mark go into some of the teachings from the Sermon on the Mount, but not near to the extent that Matthew did. Now, the sermon is not, is not going to be a philosophy or a Jewish ritual, but the right attitude toward God. Verse 520, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, and this is Jesus speaking, and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this sermon begins early in Jesus, what we call the Galilean ministry. It's right after his temptation in the wilderness. He's done his first miracle, turning the water into wine. 
And he's chosen, I think his last act before this was he chose his 12 apostles. So they're certainly with him at this time. Now, the first three Beatitudes, I see as an emptying process of emptying ourselves before God. And it has to do with our response to God and our own realization that God is our creator. And it focuses on love and humility before God. And blessed translates as happy, but there's another way it translates, and I like it better. Fortunate. So the first beatitude is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Fortunate are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Are happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus used this analogy because the people that are with him, they certainly recognize poor in spirit because the Jews could relate it, re- relate at least four of the Beatitudes are mentioned in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 3, which I'll read. The spirit, of the, for, for, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to pro- proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for prisoners, to proclaim, to proclaim year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and to provide those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, of planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Now, the poor in Jesus' day... They were not only poor, but they were oppressed. They had few possessions and little power and little hope. They really needed to depend on others for survival. Most of them did. Poor in spirit is a mental characteristic that God can build on. He cannot build on pride, self-will, or even our own ambition. Poor in spirit are therefore humble before God. They have no arrogance, no self-righteousness. Example, the parable of the prodigal son. When he went away to a foreign country and spent his inheritance, he got very hungry. And he prayed and he says, he says, He's no longer worthy to be called his father's son. So he went back and he humbled himself before his father. That's poor in spirit.
The poor in spirit surrenders to authority. Poverty in spirit is a consciousness of our own self-sinfulness and spiritual poverty before God. Now, you remember when I first opened up, I talked about this kudzu forest that I got into? About this time, I got choked on the kudzu forest because I had a realization here that this poor in spirit certainly has connotations, if not even the beginning of what true faith is. Faith is the cornerstone of our Christianity. And it's mentioned in Second Peter when it talks about the fruits of the Spirit. And Peter first mentions faith, and he builds on that goodness and knowledge, self-control, and perseverance. I certainly made a certainly made a correlation between poor in spirit and faith as our cornerstone of Christianity. But that's when I had to cut, cut, get out of the kudzu forest or I would have never gotten any further than I am right now. The opposite of poor in spirit is the person who stands before God to be given what he deserves. Example, remember the two men that went up to pray? The Pharisee said, I'm glad I'm not like other sinners. But the tax collector went up there and says, have mercy on me, I am a sinner. So the application of poor in spirit, we must humble ourselves before God and realize that we bring nothing of our own power. Only those who realize their own spiritual bankruptcy will become candidates for citizenship into the new kingdom. Now, the second beatitude, and this is another emptying in process before God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The word mourn in the Greek is the most intensive kind of mourning. And the most intensive kind of mourning is an example that I could come up with. And Jim used this example a couple of weeks ago comes from Genesis 37, verses 34 and 35. And it has to do with Jacob. And just to paraphrase, not reading it, not reading those scriptures, but remember Joseph's brothers brought the coat of Jacob to him and they smeared it with animal blood. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned many days. He refused to be comforted. And he said he would go down to the grave of his son. Jacob said an extreme mourning. Jesus used this metaphor because the Jews fully understood what it was like to mourn. The Jews were still mourning that they are under the suppression of the Roman Empire, but also they hadn't gotten over the humiliation that their forefathers had been taken into captivity in, 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 in about 400 years ago. They re- still remember the nation being taken into exile by a tyrannical nation and being 
total disrepair. They had little hope. These Jews listening to Jesus this day could relate to the word picture of mourning, but their comfort would come from the Messiah that would save them from their sin that caused their mourning. They need to come to the realization that their grieving needs to be turned, needs to turn to a nation that is lost and ruined. So true mourning is focusing on what we have done to our God, how we have violated his very nature and character. We mourn because we grasp the profound loss in our lives, just like Jacob did, because we have separated ourselves from God because of our sins. There will be no comfort to those who deny their sins. There's no consolation who think their sins are no big deal. Comfort goes to those who are broken by their sins. Christian maturity is growing sorrow over our sin. So the application here is being poor in spirit creates a mourning over our own shortcomings. The instruction here would concern the focus of the mourning, not the grief for the mourning itself. We need to realize what has caused the mourning. We have opened our heavy hearts to the Lord, and we know that our grieving is not without hope. Now, the third beatitude is another emptying process before God. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. There again, fortunate are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The third beatitude on the emptying process of the humility before God. The word meek, in this case, does not mean weakness. Examples of biblical men who were meek. Abraham, which we've been studying about in Sunday morning Bible class for quite some time. Moses was the most humble man on earth. David, in 1 Samuel, he spares Saul's life. Stephen in Acts 7, when he was stoned to death. Paul in his defense to King Agrippa. And plus, of course, Jesus himself. These are all examples of meek people. They're not meek. The meek are those who have a spirit of gentleness and self-control. They are free from malice and a condescending spirit. The meek do not exploit or oppress others given to vengeance or vendettas. They are not violent. Do not seize power for their own ends. The meek are like a powerful war horse with a rein in his mouth. You familiar with a war horse? War horses go back, probably last used in World War I. They were big, strong animals. They, they pulled the caissons. They pulled the cannons. They were not fair, terrified of loud noises or bombs going off. They were tough animals. But with a rein in their mouth, they were meek and their strength was controlled. That's what we're talking about. 
The promise here is that they will inherit the earth. Look at Psalms 37, 29. The righteousness will inherit the earth and dwell in it forever. The land of the Jews was constantly invaded, and they were exiled for their land by, the, by an overbearing, tyrannical nation. The Jews listening here understood this concept, but were looking for a land that was more stable and not a promised land that they were going to be driven from. We also need to look at Psalms 37.11. Matthew 5.5 5 is a direct quote from Psalms 37.11. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. So let's look at Psalms 37 to see what meek people really are. Psalms 37.5 says, Meek people trust in God and commit their way to the Lord. They believe that God is for them and not against them. They are willing to humble themselves and through prayer petition God to help them cope with the complexities of life. Verse 7 in Psalms 37, the meek have discovered that God can be trusted and they're willing to wait on him. They know God has their best interest at heart. They don't fret over why the wicked seem to succeed. Verse 8 goes on to say that the meek refrain from anger, revenge, and defensiveness. They leave vindication in God's hands. They absorb diversity and criticism without lashing back. They first try to understand the other person's point of view before trying to make themselves understood. To try to sum up that they will inherit the earth, God is the owner of the earth. Those who obey Christ become children of God and joint heirs with the Lord, Romans 8, 17. So our blessings are both present and future. We are heirs in the kingdom of Christ, and our citizenship is available now on this earth and in the future, both Ephesians 5, 5 and Colossians 1, 13 talk of this. The first beatitude and the last beatitude are present tense. And the six in the middle are future tense, creating a sandwich effect for the present and the future of the blessings of the beatitudes. So how does one become meek? Gentleness and meekness is certainly part of the fruits of the spirit. They are produced in the Christian through prayer and the Holy Spirit. Meekness and gentleness also begins with being poor in spirit and then mourning over our sins. In Psalms 37.4, it says the meek find delight in the Lord and says they put their hope in the Lord.
Now, I already knew when I started this thing this morning that I was not going to get through all the Beatitudes. I'm not even going to try. But I'm looking at my time out back there, and Jeremy will cut my pay if I go over time. But I'm going to try to get in, just talk for a few minutes about blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, because for they will be filled. That's verse 5, 6. Hunger and thirst is a feeling impossible to ignore. It starts out as a mild discomfort and gives the urge to eat or drink gets stronger the longer it goes. The desire to drink water when you are thirsty can be so strong you can ignore other dangers. And we have a song relating to that as the deer pants for water. I'm going to say more about that in just a minute. The hunger and thirst for righteousness is our desire to be right with God. Paul tells us in Rome, Romans 5, 1 through 11, that we are justified, made righteous through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The verse in Romans, God declares us righteous because our sins were paid for by Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, the righteousness mentioned in the Beatitudes is not the same righteousness that Paul speaks about in Romans. The righteousness here is our moral behavior and our right motives. The idea of righteousness would be consistent with Psalms 42, 1 through 2, reference again as the deer pants for water. Now, I have my own experience with as a deer pants for water. And I just want to relay it to you because I want to just express upon you how strong our desire is to drink when we're thirsty or to eat when we're hungry. I was doing a little whitewater paddling in my kayak down the Eno River a few years ago. And I heard a bane of dogs off to my left coming towards the river. And I looked over there, and it was a field, and I could see the dogs coming. They were mid-sized to large dogs. But what I didn't see right in front of these dogs was a deer that they were chasing. Now, when I saw the deer, he was just about to cross the river. So I pulled my kayak over into an eddy where I could watch what was going on. And the deer, I don't know, maybe he was 50, 60 yards in front of the dogs. Now, a Deer is a very shy animal, does not like humans. And if you're walking in the woods and you see a deer, the only thing you're going to see is his white flag in the back. That's all you're going to see because they just, they're very shy animals. They don't like to be seen. But this deer stops within 10 yards of my kayak. He knows I'm there, but these dogs are right behind him. But this deer had such a thirst and a strong desire to drink. He ignored me. He ignored the dogs. And he stood there in the middle of the river and drank water before he started off again. Now, I know that most dogs, they cannot run as fast as a deer, but they can run down a deer because they have more stamina than a deer. I don't know the outcome of what happened here. The deer got out of the river, and he took off on the other side, and the dogs weren't far behind him. 
So that's how strong it can be to thirst. Now, do you crave more than anything else to live a life that pleases God? Then Jesus declared in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Application, hunger and thirst, begins with a commitment to God. The challenge is to ask ourselves what we hunger and thirst for. Salvation comes to those who desire it. Our spiritual poverty and mourning over our sins should compel us to desire salvation, restoration, reconciliation, and righteousness. Now, I'm going to stop there. And the next beatitude is, blessed are the merciful, for they will show mercy. So we'll have to take that up at another time. But as an invitation, where's your walk with God? Do you recognize that you give spirituality, that your spirituality is poor without God? Do you recognize that Jesus Christ as the only name under heaven that did sacrifice himself so that you can be cleansed of your sins. Do you have a need to come to Jesus this morning? Can we help you in any way as we stand and sing?